0: Welcome to the Cover Two Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover Two Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover Two Resources. In August, the New York Times series The Weekly aired an episode about a secret prosecution memo from a 2006 case against Purdue Pharma that was leaked to a New York Times reporter and author, Barry Meyer. The memo details how government investigators believe that Purdue Pharma, the maker of the powerful opioid OxyContin, knew but denied their drug was addictive and was being abused, fueling a rise in addiction. After a four-year investigation costing taxpayers millions of dollars, the case was ready to move forward with the blessing of Jim Comey, the deputy attorney general at the time. But then, at the 11th hour... Rudy Giuliani, was able to broker a settlement. Much of the details of the case and how it came to be settled have still not come to light. In today's episode, you'll hear from the former Deputy Chief of the Fraud Section of the Department of Justice's Criminal Division, Paul Pelletier, who worked on the case. Also, you'll hear from best-selling author of American Overdose, Chris McGreal. And finally, we'll talk with Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Ehrenberg, who brought the first case in Florida against Purdue Pharma in 2002. As we try to answer these questions, why did it take so long, first of all, for this information to come to light? Had its contents been revealed to the public 12 years ago, would it have stemmed the opioid crisis? And who was behind the decision to settle with the drug manufacturer responsible for igniting our country's worst health crisis in history? As we begin, the former Deputy Chief of Fraud for the Department of Justice, Paul Pelletier, talks about the purpose of the prosecution memo.
2: Well, I, I can speak generally about prosecution memos, okay? And so what prosecution memos are, are a record of the evidence in the law that supports the of the corporation or individuals who, you, who a prosecutor wants to prosecute. In other words, so what the POS memo does is articulate, it articulates all the evidence. Some of that evidence is grand jury evidence, um, which is secret. Some of the evidence is is interview evidence of uh, uh, the product of witness interviews. And some of it is evidence that um, is obtained outside the grand jury process. So it's an amalgamation of the evidence necessary to prove the charges that the prosecutor wants to bring forward. So in every case, particularly in every white collar case, a prosecution memo is done to articulate the basis for those charges. And in this case, one was done, and, and I recall seeing it because the matter ultimately had matriculated up through the attorney general, and we can get to that. But, but that's what a prosecution memo seeks to do.
1: In Barry Meyer's New York Times articles on the memo, it was revealed that the Sackler family, the owners of Purdue Pharma, were sent reports about the increased crime and abuse surrounding their product, OxyContin, shortly after it was approved. Was there something that jumped out, a revelation that really surprised you? A couple
2: of things. What what I remember that surprised me was that the, the, the company, Purdue Pharma, actually knew and understood that this drug Oxycontin was highly addictive and indeed subject to diversion and they were stating the op- opposite and they were stating the opposite because from my recollection it was Purdue Pharma was most interested in the profits that would gener- that would be generated from marketing this drug to non-cancer patients, which, which of course, that's what it was approved for. So that was the first thing that came to that I, that I recalled, and um, and just the depth of efforts that they went to to market this off-label, if you will, um, and understanding and knowing that it, and that it was indeed highly addictive and that it, that it was indeed subject to diversion, number one. And then number two, how I recall that the, the post memo um, indicated that, the, that some of the emails and some of the information about its addictive capacity and its divertible diversion ca- capacity had made it to the highest levels of Purdue mama, including um, the Sackler, whose name I forget, that that, that was in charge. Those are the... Those are the two things that, that I remember to this day from the memo.
1: And what stood out to me is their claims that OxyContin was less abusable, less addictive, and less subject to diversion. And their claims that they didn't know about that before 2001. The memo also revealed that prosecutors found damning emails that were sent to Dr. Sackler in 1999 detailing internet chatroom conversations about crushing and snorting OxyContin. The investigation also uncovered some irregularities beginning with the approval process of OxyContin. The FDA's medical officer, whose task with reviewing the OxyContin application for approval, actually invited Purdue Pharma employees to help him write the medical officer reviews or Moore's as they're referred to, which were uh, submitted as part of the new drug application. And according to Purdue Pharma documents, they spent three days in a rented room near the FDA offices helping him write the reviews of the clinical study reports and integrated summaries of efficacy and safety. Wow, that, that was a bombshell. I, I, that was shocking. Can you comment on that? And why isn't there any oversight, anyhow? How can they get away with that?
2: The case that the government was making was very strong. In other words, it addressed those topics, to the best of my knowledge. It addressed those topics. And whether or not there's a lack of oversight, there, there clearly is oversight. But I think w- my recollection is that the prosecution of this case and the prosecution memo um, addressed sort of. OxyContin or the effort of pursue pharma to promote oxycontin in a way that was not supported by by the application. And this is what they were trying to prosecute and address in the prosecutions.
1: The final recommendation in the prosecution memo was to move forward with this case, and it was a strong recommendation. I think in the film you suggested that this was one of the most elaborate and detailed prosecution memos that you'd ever read at the time
2: yeah I mean again I remember the memo was was over a hundred pages of length or approximately a hundred pages of length I remember um, the shocking details that I read in it at the time but I remember that that it was very shocking to me um, how purdue um, knew and understood what was going on almost in real time. And then number three, uh, um, I remember talking with the prosecutors and the, and the passion and the strength of the evidence that was expressed through them. So again, the process here is the deputy attorney general sent it down to the criminal division, the post memo down to be reviewed and evaluated. Um, it was then assigned to the fraud section because we had a healthcare fraud unit. I assigned it to my healthcare fraud chief to review and write a memo himself uh, um, as to what his recommendations were. And I also remember that his recommendations were very strong in terms of allowing the prosecutors to, to bring forth the charges and the charges were fully supported by both the facts and the law, so I remember
1: that specific. So the government gears up for for this fight, and they're excited to move forward with this uh, prosecution of Purdue Pharma. Meanwhile, on the other side, it turns out Purdue Pharma was also ready for a fight with the Justice Department. In 2002, Michael Friedman, the executive vice president and chief operating officer of Purdue Pharma, announced engaging. Giuliani Partners as an external advisor. And that year, Rudy Giuliani's firm proceeded to halt a Purdue Pharma opioid investigation in Florida. Dave Ehrenberg, the Palm Beach County State Attorney, speaks about investigating Purdue Pharma in Florida in 2002.
3: Well, we were the first ones to investigate Purdue Pharma. So we were right there, tip of the spear, and we were finding that the company was marketing its product like it was advil marketing oxycontin like it was safe and non addictive when it was really neither but we didn't have the resources that other uh, law enforcement agencies had like uh federal agencies so we had one investigator on it and you know we had me <laughs> as the lead uh, assistant attorney general on it and still we were able to Buying stuff that to me was troublesome.
1: Let's talk just a little bit about some of the things that you did unearth that that you do recall um, that came to you as really uh, being pretty uh, damning.
3: Well, just the fact that the way that they were marketing the product was like it was an arthritis medication. They were selling it to seniors, swing as alive, swing in the right direction with OxyContin. Looking back now, you see how crazy that is to sell it as arthritis medication, selling it as the one to start with, and I remember pushing back on the fact that this was being sold as a drug of first choice instead of something that should be used maybe when nothing else works or just for end-stage cancer medication, but this was being sold as a drug to start with, and I remember when I got pushed back about that from the company, and then I just pointed to the swag they were handing out, which was the, I remember the mugs on the back of the mug, it said "OxyContin, the one to start with." <laughs> so it was really about the marketing of the product. We were a, um, you know, an, an agency that didn't have a lot of resources to take on uh, the uh, company like the U.S. government did, but we were able. We were first, and so we were able to find things that no one else had seen before. Uh, in retrospect, you know, if I had not left. To go to uh, the US, the State Senate, then perhaps we would have had a different settlement than the one that ultimately was entered into. But you know, I I hate to second guess my colleagues at the time, uh, but you know, it, it, to me, you know, if this company was doing something that led to the premature deaths of so many Americans, and they deserve to be held accountable for it.
1: So, because it settled. Much of their deceptive marketing practices never came to light, and it didn't for many, many years. Had it gone ahead and actually gone to trial, what difference do you think that would have made?
3: Well, I think they would have been held liable civilly because I was in the Economic Crimes Division, but we prosecuted cases on a civil basis. We use the Florida Deceptive and Unfair Trade Practices Act. But the real hammer would have been discovery. We would have had opportunity to get more documents in any such trial. I also spoke to members of the statewide prosecution team to see if it warranted criminal prosecution, but before we can go further down that road, I left. So I was uh, in charge of the investigation for about a year. And then after I left, it remained a civil investigation. But to me, the greatest loss opportunity was the chance to put handcuffs on some of the executives for Purdue Pharma. That would have sent the right message, because in my experience, that it is a pair of handcuffs that is the best deterrent to criminal conduct. A fine for many businesses is just the cost of doing business. But ours was a civil investigation from the beginning. The U.S. Justice Department initiated a criminal investigation of the company. And that's where I think the lost opportunity was because in 2006, when the fed settled with Purdue Pharma and Purdue Pharma had you know, high profile lawyers like Rudy Giuliani, they were able, the company was able to avoid criminal liability, criminal sanctions. And so you had executives being charged criminally, but ending up just paying a, a fine.
1: Next, we pivot back to our discussion on the 2006 case against Purdue Pharma with Paul Pelletier. We know that Mr. Giuliani met repeatedly with John Brownlee to try to settle the case, but his argument that it was the prescribing doctor's fault left Brownlee unswayed in his opinion. So Mr. Giuliani's office then turned to James Comey, then at the time deputy of the attorney general, saying that those guys down there are crazy. So Comey had a sit-down meeting with Brownlee, and they discussed the case, and Comey signed off on moving ahead. Brownlee set a a plea deal deadline of October in 2006. And hours before that deadline expired, he got a call from the new deputy attorney general, Paul McNulty's office, pressing for a delay. Apparently, without hours of that that call, Purdue accepted a plea deal. And someone on the inside at the time apparently made a difference and, and cut this deal. Could you speak to exactly what happened there?
2: Well, first of all, I can tell you whatever happened was weird and different. And so, um, by the time I got involved, Jim Jim Comey was not the deputy attorney general. Um, by the time I got involved in this case, it was October of 2006 and the deputy attorney general was Paul McNulty, not, not James Comey. So I don't, I can't speak to sort of what happened between Brownlee and Comey, but that doesn't surprise me. Jim Comey was a, uh, was a long time, uh, Prosecutor, United States Attorney, and that sounds to me to be what he would have said and what he would have done. What was weird about this case is it, it, it was very clear to me that decisions were being made in the Deputy Attorney General's office independent of what we were recommending in the Criminal Division. What I say is the timeline you've just set forth doesn't, doesn't, um, isn't what i recall because um it just seems to me that at, through the month of october um we were addressing the issue we were meeting with the prosecutors but it but i also know that there were definitely back channel meetings ha- happening at the deputy attorney general level and, and i know this because i certainly remember that after we had our meetings with the defense lawyers and we had our meetings with uh, the prosecutors Decisions were made at the deputy attorney general's level that were inconsistent with our recommendation. So I can only, I can only understand and expect that someone was making decisions based on reasons or I don't want to say reasons, but in a process that was not ordinary to me and not regular. So. I, all my radar always goes up when that happens. No one was able, ever able to articulate why the U.S. Attorney's Office was not permitted to go forth with felony prosecutions against the individuals.
1: Next, Dave Ehrenberg offers insights into missteps in battling the opioid epidemic.
3: You had distributors plying these small towns around the country with millions of pills, even though they're only maybe a thousand people in these towns. So they knew that there was massive diversion ongoing and yet no one did anything about it. This was an, a a preventable epidemic that was created by, by human beings through professional greed and corporate malfeasance and regulatory failure and political apathy. And all these things combined into this unprecedented epidemic that, Now has millions of people addicted to this day that continues to kill 130 people every day. And you're starting to see movement to deal with it. But, you know, we keep fighting the last war. You know, we keep fighting the war. Well, it was pill mills and then it became, well, first it became pill mills and then it became heroin and then it's fentanyl. Now it's fentanyl's analogs. And we have to make sure we're fighting the current war. Let's get tough with China, for example. They're the ones who are exporting fentanyl into our country. Um, much of it through the U.S. Postal Service still. So, you know, the, to me, there are loss opportunities every day because the strategies have been slow. The, uh, the, the focus has been, in some cases, misplaced. And we still continue to miss the pressing uh, epidemic, the pressing crises amongst us. And so I'm hoping that podcasts like yours refocus us into what really needs to happen. If you think that this problem is going to go away because of the settlement with Purdue Pharma, it's not. The settlement's not even large enough. Um, so it's important for us to call out those who created this man-made epidemic. And hopefully, you know, we can make a real difference.
1: Back to Chris McGreal now, award-winning author of American Overdose, for his insights into Rudy Giuliani's role in the case against Purdue Pharma from 2006,
0: Rudy Giuliani was hired specifically because of his ability to play the political system as well as the legal system. That's what he's there for. As you say, he was America's mayor. It's immediately after 9-11 and um, he's there to get under the skin of the political system within the Justice Department and elsewhere, and affect how this prosecution against Purdue Pharma goes. But he's also, at the same time, you know, acting as a legal negotiator on behalf of Purdue Pharma with the prosecutor John Brownlee in Virginia. Um, and When I spoke to John Brownlee about this uh, in an interview for my book, he described the, the various stages with, of dealing with Giuliani, and he said it began with outright denial. Simply, there is no case here. You've misunderstood the way things work. You've misunderstood the role of OxyContin. You've misunderstood the role of Purdue Pharma. He begins by trying to persuade him that there is no case to pursue. The investigation should simply be brought to a halt. When Brownlee refuses to do that, it evolves into mitigating the damage, negotiating down the terms of the uh, prosecution. And uh, Brownlee was at pains to say that in his personal dealings with Giuliani, Giuliani did not do anything uh, wrong. In their face to face meetings or their conversations, he was just acting as a lawyer for the company. Where, of course, Giuliani's other uh, part in this was going behind the, basically Brownlee's back to more senior people inside the Department of Justice and affecting the prosecution that way. The two things that Giuliani gets that matter to Purdue Pharma in this is firstly the prosecution, the criminal prosecution of the company itself is shifted from Purdue Pharma to uh, its holding company, Purdue Frederick. And that matters because if Purdue Pharma had had a criminal conviction it would have effectively barred the federal government from doing business with it It would have meant that its drug oxycontin would not have been bought by medicaid medicare uh, the veterans administration that would have had a huge impact on sales and profits Um, the company was incredibly keen to avoid that and when i asked um, Brownlee why he went along with that why the conviction would be shifted to the holding company of Purdue Frederick, and therefore keep sales going to the federal government. He said to me he didn't think that it was his job to shut down access to Oxycontin. Um, he now reflects on what might have been different if he had indeed taken that action. But he says he saw the case against that. Um, but that case was made forcibly by Giuliani, um, both to Brownlee and to others in the ev- in the Justice Department. And then the second part of that was that the criminal prosecution wasn't just a Purdue Pharma. It was of three senior executives in the company, and the company wanted to keep them out of jail. So they ended up up with convictions and paying huge fines in the tens of millions of dollars, which tells you something about how much money these individuals were making, were being paid for um pushing and selling oxycontin marketing oxycontin in this criminal enterprise that they were convicted of Um, but it kept them out of jail the convictions did not see anyone go to prison now that in itself uh was not brownlee's original intent he had wanted them he had recommended that they be prosecuted and go to prison giuliani was hired by the company as an outside lawyer so he he, he, he Perdue, when purdue farm would begin the defense of this he's not their main man but when they realize that it's going downhill um and that brownlee's going to continue the prosecution then they bring in giuliani in that hopes of having that that influence both as you know the big name lawyer confronting uh the um the, the the prosecutor the federal prosecutor in rural virginia but also um having that influence in washington that we were talking about but at the same time giuliani has lots of other things and his company has lots of other things going on they have contracts with the dea they have working relationship with the justice department um, all of which can be seen um, and probably are a Conflict of interest. Uh, Giuliani's attitude towards all of this has always been: these are just different interests that his law firm has. There is no conflict of interest; they are compartmentalized. Um, I think what they all are, to be frank, is a reflection, uh, particularly in that era um, uh, of his, uh, which was the George W. Bush era, of his standing and influence in Washington. That he doors opened for him; um, he could get to sit, talk to who he wanted to in the Justice Department, contracts were there for his firm.
1: Once again, Chris weighs in on what might have happened if we knew then what we know now about the corrupt marketing practices of Purdue Pharma.
0: Well, I think it's a really interesting question. I mean I think the first thing is had the prosecution had the conviction, the criminal conviction for which Purdue ends up paying $600 million fine um, and for which his executive should have gone to prison. Uh, had that been against the company and affected their ability to uh, sell to federal authorities or uh, federal agencies, um, that obviously would have had a big impact on the spread of OxyContin. One of the one of the uh, areas that it, it, you know you see the sudden rise in the use of opioids is inside the Veterans Administration. Um, so a lot of vets, um, particularly those coming back from fighting in Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, where they might have been wounded, are put onto these drugs. So that would have had an immediate effect on sales. But I think the other thing is that it would have drawn attention. It would have drawn you know, uh, uh, the attention of the medical authorities, uh, political authorities, Congress. It would have focused in much more on what this company had done Uh, its actions, and perhaps there would have been uh, a more immediate action to curtail and take the growing opioid epidemic seriously. Instead, what you see is Purdue do something, particularly inside Congress. Their lobbyists go to work, and what they say is they've only pleaded guilty to uh, to this criminal indictment to get it off their back. They haven't really done anything wrong. It's just an overzealous prosecutor. And you know, they paid the money to get it out the way, but don't take it too seriously. Look, they didn't even send our executives to jail. And um, so they talk it down. And of course, uh, Purdue Pharma are now being sued, left, right, and center, for not only what they did prior to 2006 when they had the conviction, but actually for having carried on doing it afterwards. And so that conviction uh, and the ease with which he got away with. Uh, accountability had opened the door to them just carrying on as before. And I think that's perhaps uh, the other big takeaway from this. There's a third takeaway as well, and Brownlee senses this, is that he came under enormous political pressure. Purdue Farmer made life very difficult for him, um, including, although it's hard to say exactly how this panned out and who was responsible for what decision at what time. He finds himself on a name or list of of prosecutors to be dismissed by the bush administration not long after he goes after purdue farmer and it's not clear how he ended up on that list but he his name was put there by somebody inside the justice department who had tried to deter the investigation and um it's clear to brownlee and others that uh, those actions deterred other prosecutors from going after companies like Purdue Pharma and others that were pushing opioids at that point so um so the the industry was really emerges from this instead rather than being constrained by this prosecution it seems to emerge and carry on as before and in some ways feel like it has a freer hand because uh, no other prosecutors are going to have the balls to go after them again, and that was probably, you know, that was pretty much true uh, for quite a few years until finally we now see these this round of lawsuits and prosecutions that we've got now. It should
1: be noted, much of the facts surrounding the negotiations and settlement between the Department of Justice and Purdue Pharma and the role of Rudy Giuliani remain a secret to this day. In August 2018. Senators Margaret Hassan and Sheldon Whitehouse issued requests for information on the case to the DEA and to the DOJ. As of this date, they're still waiting for answers to their requests. I want to thank my guests today, former Deputy Chief of the Fraud Section of the Department of Justice's Criminal Division, Paul Pelletier, and Dave Ehrenberg, who's the Palm Beach County State Attorney. And finally, best-selling author of American Overdose, Chris McReal. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. For the latest on community events and our podcast series, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Cover 2 Resources. That's cover, the number two, and resources. As always, thank you for listening to the Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you.